we're looking at verses 81 to 88 and verses 89 to 96 of Psalm 119 this afternoon. In in verses 81 to 88, the psalmist uh, complains of his affliction. In fact, he mentions the afflictions in seven of the eight verses of that uh, stanza. And if you look at it a little more closely than that, I think you can see that he first talks about the effect of the affliction on himself in verses 81 to 84a. And then he talks about the the cause of that affliction, his enemies, in 84b to 87. And then there's a concluding verse 88 in which he prays for God's help against his enemies. But in spite of the fact that this is a stanza that talks uh, um, in detail about his affliction, in fact it's the most troubled of all the stanzas in the psalm, it is still nevertheless a a stanza uh, in which he expresses his uh, confidence in the word of God. So that we would have to say that the main idea of the stanza is your word is my support in my affliction. Your word is my support in my affliction. So let's look first at what he says about his affliction. Then let's look at how he responds to that affliction. And then finally at his uh, requests to God in the affliction. One of the things that does not come across in our translation is that there's a single Hebrew word here that's used three times to describe his affliction. And it is the word which we may translate as fail. You find it first in verse 81, my soul fails for your salvation. You find it again in verse 82, my eyes fail from searching your word. And then also in verse 87, they almost made me fail from the earth. So you have that idea of failing here. And that's the main word which he uses to describe his affliction here. That he is failing. First of all, he says, my soul fails for your salvation. And what he means by that, of course, is that he's been waiting for the salvation of God and asking for the salvation of God, and that salvation has not come. And now his strength is nearly exhausted, and his soul is failing. He is on the edge of perishing because the salvation which he seeks from his God has not come to him. So that's verse 81. Then in verse 82, he speaks of his eyes failing. My eyes fail for your word. And what he means, of course, is explained more fully in the second part of that verse, saying, when will you comfort me? So he's waiting, in this case, for the word of God. And that word is is a word of comfort. That's the word that he wants to hear from God, a word of comfort in his affliction, 
And that word is not coming. He is watching for that word. His eyes are strained to see that word coming to him. And he has strained his eyes so long in watching for that word that his eyes are now failing. His eyes are growing dim, as he might say in another psalm. So his soul is failing and his eyes are failing. And then in verse 87, which we'll be coming back to in a little bit, his life itself is failing. They almost made me fail from the earth, he says. So this is the first of the effects of his affliction on him, that his soul, his eyes, and his life are failing. But he has a couple of other descriptions of the effects of his uh, this affliction as well. In verse uh, 83, he says, I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. A wineskin, of course, would be leather, and if you left a wineskin in the smoke for a lengthy period of time, the leather would lose its suppleness and would become subject to cracking and would therefore be uh, become useless. It would dry out, in other words. And I think that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about his spiritual dryness. He thirsts for the water of life, and the water of life is not being given to him. He is like David in Psalm 32 when he says, My vitality has turned into the drought of summer. He's, he's living in a dry and thirsty land in which no water is found. Psalm 63. So that's the, the other description. He's spiritually dry. And then you have one more uh, in verse 84, one more description of the effects of this affliction on him. How many are the days of your servant? This is more by implication, by way of implication, but it's certainly, he's suggesting here that his days are being shortened by this affliction. He is coming near to death. His affliction has made him contemplate how frail and how brief his life is in affliction. So these are the uh, effects of affliction on himself. But then in uh, verse 84b and and the next three verses, he talks about the cause of the affliction, and the cause of the affliction is his enemies who are persecuting him. Notice how he uses that word persecute twice, First in verse 84, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? And then also in verse 86, they persecute me wrongfully. So he's being persecuted by his enemies. His enemies are seeking to destroy him. And it is because of this persecution of his enemies that his soul and eyes then are failing and his life also is failing. He mentions also in verse 85, the proud have dug pits for me. Of course, this is a metaphor taken from the whole um, field of hunting, when in those days, anyway, people would dig pits and would bait the pit, perhaps, and, and disguise the pit and hope to lure animals into the pits. And thus the animal would not be able to escape and eventually the hunter would come and and slaughter the animal whom he had caught in the pit. And this is what the psalmist is saying about his enemies. They're they're digging out pits 
for my soul. They're digging out pits in order to take me and in order to destroy me, just as if I were their prey, their rightful prey. And then finally, he says in verse 87, they almost made an end of me, or they almost made me fail from the earth. They have brought him very close then to the grave, to complete destruction and separation from his God. So you have the effects of this affliction on him first, then the cause of the affliction in the persecution of his enemy. But there are a couple of things that are not stated explicitly, or one thing that's not stated explicitly here, that we have to understand from this, and that is that the heart of this affliction is that the Lord has delayed his help. The Lord had not come to rescue him from his enemies. The Lord, uh, he says, uh, I have... My soul faints or my soul fails for your salvation. He's obviously been calling on the Lord for his salvation and the salvation has not been given. He says again, my eyes fail for your word. He's been waiting for this word of comfort and the word of comfort has not come. God has not responded to his cries, to his hope, to his praying, to his need as he has made it known to him. God has, as it were, abandoned him. And there is no comfort for him then in this affliction. If there were comfort, the affliction would be much less significant than it is. He is waiting even, he says, for the judgment of his enemies. When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? So he's asked the Lord for salvation. He's asked the Lord to give him a word of comfort. He's asked the Lord to bring judgment on his enemies in order to stop their persecution of him. And nothing has happened. The Lord is not near. The Lord stands far off from him and leaves him in the hand of his enemies. That's the worst of his affliction here. And that's the worst affliction, of course, that can come to any Christian, that he feels abandoned by his God. And all this has happened to him wrongfully. That is, he has suffered for righteousness' sake. There are three places where he um, makes that clear. First in verse 85, The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your word. (coughs) Seems obvious, right? They have dug pits. This digging of pits is not according to God's word. But the point he's making is that they have had no righteous cause, no just cause for digging pits for him. This was not according to God's word, God's law, that they did this. This was not then because they loved him as their neighbor and sought by their uh, afflicting him to correct him, for example, or that they were punishing him for some crime he had committed and therefore punishing him justly. This was not according to the law of God. This was against God's law that they were acting against him. It was not at all according to love for the neighbor or love for God, for any concern for his well-being. It was motivated instead by their unrighteous and unjust hatred of him. 
And then he says the same thing essentially in verse 86. They persecute me wrongfully. This is all wrongful things that they are doing to me. There's nothing righteous about it. And he puts it yet a different way in verse 87 when he says, they almost made me fail from the earth, but I did not forsake your precepts. So he's saying, there was not in me a forsaking of your precepts, a walking in ways of sin that could explain why they did this, or why this affliction was brought to me, or why even the Lord brought this affliction upon me. I did not forsake the precepts of the Lord, and yet this affliction came upon me. My cause and my path have been right, and yet my enemies have almost made me fail from the earth. So these are two factors then that add to his, his sense of misery, that the Lord has forsaken him and that he suffers not for sin, but for righteousness' sake. And yet, to turn now to his response to all of this affliction, throughout this, all this affliction, he turns in faith to God. This is all prayer. As we noted about the psalm itself at the beginning, of our discussion, the psalm itself is all prayer, and this stanza is all prayer. He is turning to God, he is committing his trouble and his affliction to God. He is still, in spite of the fact that he feels forsaken by God, seeking God's help and God's uh, comfort. And you can see that, again, in a number of different verses, how he is responding to this affliction of his enemies in verse 81. My soul fails for your salvation, but I hope in your word. He has not given up hope. And he has not given up hope in that word for which his eyes are failing, according to verse 82. I hope in your word, and then he goes right on to say in the next line, my eyes fail for your word. I've been waiting for your word. I've been waiting for your word of comfort. And it has not come to me. But still, he says in verse 1, I hope in your word. I have not given up hope that you will indeed speak that word of comfort which my soul needs so desperately. In verse 83, he says this, I do not forget your statutes. I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. I'm, I'm spiritually dry. I'm perishing in this wilderness where there is no water, where I cannot find the water of life. And yet, yet I do not forget your statutes. I continue to remember your statutes and to live according to your statutes. And then in verse um, uh, 86, all your commandments are faithful. And notice here that we have a change in this verse from the usual order in, in Psalm 119. Almost always these statements about the commandments, about his commitment to the commandments, come in the second place in the verse, in the second line in the verse. And they do in all the other verses in this stanza. But in this stanza, he puts it first. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. And he means to set up this contrast 
between the faithful commandments of the Lord and the unfaithfulness of those who are persecuting him. But he also means, I think, by putting it first to say, it's exactly because of the faithfulness of your commandments that I am able to stand against the persecution of your enemy, about my enemies. All your commandments are faithful. They never change. They are always the same from the beginning of the world till now, and I'm confident that they will continue to be the same through all of life. And it's exactly because those commandments are the same, they are faithful commandments, unchangeable commandments, that I can have the confidence that my enemies persecute me wrongfully. The commandments teach me that my enemies persecute me wrongfully. And I can be certain that those commandments will not mislead me, that those commandments will not change. The commandments of men change, but the commandments of God do not. The commandments of men change because men themselves change. The commandments of God do not change. Because God does not change. All your commandments are faithful. Therefore I know from your commandments that they persecute me wrongfully. He is therefore relying also, I think we may say, relying on these commandments for rescue. As the Lord applies these commandments to his enemies... His enemies will suffer under that the judgment of those commandments. So he looks to the faithfulness of God's commandments for the source, for the means of his rescue from his enemies. If those commandments changed, of course, he would not be able to have such confidence that God would deal with his enemies at some time in the future. It's because they're unchangeable, because they're faithful. And he can say, yes, I know that indeed you will deal with my enemies. And then finally, let's look at the request, the requests that he makes. I think we can find three explicit requests, but note, first of all, of course, that there are requests implicit in some of the statements he makes in verse 81 when he says, my soul faints for your salvation. He's obviously implying that he has asked for that salvation. Same is true in verse 82, my eyes fail for your word. He's obviously asking for that word of comfort that's implicit in his statement about this that he has been asking for it. And in verse 84 as well, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? There's implicit in that question the request that God will send judgment on his enemies. But there are also explicit requests. In verse 86, help me. That's his basic need, his fundamental need. He needs the help of the Lord. Without the help of the Lord, he will certainly perish. And then in verse 88 as well, revive me according to your loving kindness so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. That is, give me life. My life is near to being destroyed. 
Give me life. Not according to my merit, but according to your loving kindness, your free and gracious loving kindness. And do that. This is the final request, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. This is the fundamental desire. And we've seen, of course, before in other stanzas. In fact, we might even call this the main theme of the psalm. This is the goal of his life. He wants to keep the testimonies of the Lord, and he keeps on coming back to this. He says he keeps them, but he also keeps on praying. Help me keep them. Give me life so that I may keep them. And here he repeats it. Give me life so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Again, of course, we see our Lord Jesus Christ persecuted by his enemies, forsaken by his God, but continuing to hope in his God, in the word of his God, continuing to pray to his God, as we find here in this stanza, and continuing to obey the commandments of God, so that we, by his righteousness, may be saved. Let's go on then to verses 89 to 96. Now this stanza is almost completely different from uh, the preceding stanza. His enemies are still present with him. He mentions them in verse 92, I would have perished in my affliction. And in verse 95, the wicked wait for me to destroy me. But that's not the dominant theme in this uh, stanza at all. The emphasis in this stanza is on the enduring character of the word of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. He shifts then to a very positive approach to this affliction. In 81 to 88, his cry for help, a cry for loving kindness, a cry for comfort. And here, he continues in prayer, but it's a confession. And it's a confession of the support that the enduring word of God has given to him in his affliction. And that's the main idea. The a support that he receives from the enduring word of God. Your word supports me in my affliction. Now, um, verses 89 to 91, the first three verses of the stanza, are the confession by the psalmist of an objective truth. Notice he does not speak of himself in those three verses. It's not a personal prayer there. It's a confession of the truth, confession to God of his universal truth, a truth that's applicable to all men at all times. It's not until you get to verses 92 and following that he becomes very personal. And in this part of the stanza, he takes that universal truth of verses 89 to 91, and he applies it to himself, to his own circumstances, to his own circumstances of affliction, in fact. And he finds in the enduring character of God's word, then, 
his support. So what we want to do then in this stanza is look first at the enduring character of God's word as it's described in verses 89 to 91. Then we want to look at how that enduring word is his support in his affliction, especially in verses 92 to 95. And finally, he closes the stanza with a verse of praise for that enduring word. He begins then in verse 89 by saying, Your word forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And you have to ask, of course, what does that mean? That his word is settled in heaven. What's the precise idea there in that statement? Well, the word settled is often translated as stand. Your word forever, O Lord, your word stands in the heavens. I think, therefore, what he's saying is this word is fixed. This word is unchangeable. Your word stands like the heavens themselves. Your word stands. It doesn't vary with the varying circumstances of life. It doesn't change with the changing seasons of the earth. It doesn't move. It's not shaken. It's not added to or subtracted from. It's there. It remains forever in all time unchangeable in its character and in its word, in God's word to us. We never have to worry that God is going to come to us and say, forget that commandment, I've got a new one for you. Or that commandment was not quite as it should have been, I need to adjust it a little bit. That's what men do with their commandments. God's commandments are not like that. God's commandments are settled in heaven. But there's another idea here as well, I think. Sometimes that word stand in the scriptures means to have authority. If you turn to Ruth chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, you can see just one place where this is the case. Um, Ruth 2, verse 5, Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, and we might translate it, who stood over the reapers. And again in verse 6, so the servant who was in charge, or who stood over the reapers, answered and said. So there's this idea then that there's authority. It's that to stand is to take a position of authority. And I think that's probably here too that this word of God is not only a settled word, but it is a word which governs. And it governs not just men, but it governs the whole creation. That's really, in fact, the focus of verses 89 to 91. He's talking about how this word, which is settled in the heavens, which was fixed and enduring and unchangeable, is a word which has authority, which governs, which accomplishes, therefore, God's purpose. And that word is, therefore, not just a static word. It's not just, for example, words on a page or words in a code book, but it's a living and active word. It's a word which God is continually speaking in order to govern all things by it. 
These are, these are important concepts for the psalmist because he's going to take these concepts and he's going to apply them to himself and to his own circumstances of affliction. And he's going to say, this is important for me that I understand this, that I know this about the word of God because it gives me confidence in that word. It gives me support and help in my affliction. But we'll come to that in a moment. So he goes on then in, in verse 90 to talk further about this word, 90 and 91 really go together here. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. And he's not talking, I think, about God's faithfulness to men. He's talking about God's faithfulness in all of his dealings with the creation. And he's saying, you work the same way. You work faithfully according to your own character and according to your own righteousness as revealed in your law throughout all the generations of the universe which you have made. And therefore, you established the earth, and it abides. You made it in the beginning, and because your living and active word is still governing in that universe, it abides. Why does the law of gravity keep on working? Because God speaks his enduring word, his living and active word maintains it. Why does the sun rise in the morning? Because God maintains the living, uh, by his living and active word, the rising and setting of the sun. Why does E equal MC squared? Because God speaks his word and maintains the law that he has established in his creation. Earth remains according to his commandment, according to his word, according to his faithfulness. The living and active word operating in the earth. And then in verse 91, they, and I think he refers to heaven and earth there, heaven referred to in verse 89 and earth in verse 90, they continue this day according to your ordinances. Heaven and earth stand, remain in existence today and continue to operate today according to your ordinances because they are all your servants. You created them to serve you. You created them for your glory. You use them, and you continue to use them to fulfill your own purposes. So the, it's the enduring character of the Word of God which underlies and upholds the whole creation that he's talking about. The ordinances of God, which maintain the creation in its existence and keep it operating according to the laws which God has created for it. And then he goes on and he says in the um, next verses, now this is important for me, that I understand this. Unless your law had been my delight, my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. He's, he's afflicted. He's close still to perishing. And he says, there's only one thing that kept me from perishing, that your law was my delight. This law which maintains the universe, maintains the heaven and the earth, as to be your servants, this same law is my delight. And by my delight in that law, I keep from the destruction my enemies plan for me. 
Now, he, he says this in a very emphatic way. The, the word delight is actually in the Hebrew in the plural. And you can find it actually in the, in the King James Version. Unless your law had been my delights. And I think that he uses it, the plural there, because he's thinking in terms of earthly delights. We have many delights on this earth. Um, valid, lawful delights, often. He's not interested in the question whether these are lawful or unlawful delights here, but what he's saying is that there's one delight that rules over all those delights, that consumes and absorbs all those delights into itself. And that's my delight in your law. My law, my delight in your law, governs all the delights that might possibly be mine here in this world. And so he's, he's looking to the law of God and he's saying about that law of God, that's my delight. The righteousness of God revealed in that law, that's my delight. And unless it had been so, I would have perished in my affliction. I would have died if your law had not been my delight. In verse 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Here again, remember this is founded on the enduring character of the Word of God. Those precepts are unchangeable, faithful, enduring precepts. I will never forget them, because by them you have given me life. Now, is this in contradiction with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, when he says, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, Christ did. And Paul goes on then to talk about the salvation and life we have in Christ, which does not come, of course, to us through the law. And yet he says here, by them, your precepts, you have given me life. Does life come through the law? Is that what he's saying? And of course, that is not the case. That would be in contradiction to the whole sweep of the law and all the ceremonies of the law which displayed the necessity of atonement and the redeeming work of the Lamb of God and the necessity of a great high priest and of the offerings of incense and all these other things, the cleansings of the law. He's not saying that the law is in itself, by itself, the means of giving life. But I would put it this way, I think, that the law, the precepts give life because it is through the consistent application of the principles of righteousness as laid down in the law that God gives life. And the consistent application of the principles of righteousness laid down in the law is found in Christ. There, God consistently applied the righteousness of the law to us. He never forsook the righteousness of the law. He sent His Son. And in sending His Son, He fulfilled all the righteousness of the law for us. And it was, therefore, by that those precepts, 
as obeyed by and submitted to by our Lord Jesus Christ, that those that we have received life. In verse 94, he says, save me. Here's one of his requests. Save me. Again, very simple request, just like in the preceding stanza where he said, help me. Here he says, save me. But here notice how he's relying on the word of God as he makes that prayer. I am yours. You have said, I am the Lord your God. You have said, I belong to you. You have redeemed me. You have purchased me for yourself. You have taken me to be your possession, your precious possession. Save me. And in connection with that becoming your precious possession, I have sought your precepts just as you commanded. You said, I am the Lord your God. Keep my commandments. And I have done that. It is in this way that I have come to the knowledge that you are my God and I am yours. Save me then in that context. In the context of the keeping of your precepts. And then in verse uh, 95, the wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. And here I think he puts the testimonies after, because as the wicked are plotting against him, lying in wait for him, seeking to destroy him. He says, I won't be distracted from considering your testimonies. I will continue to seek your testimonies. They will not be a hindrance to me in it. And he concludes then on a note of praise. I have seen the consummation of all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now, that word consummation, I think, is maybe a little bit misleading here because it suggests something very positive. And though it's possible, I think, to interpret the verse in a very positive way, when you look at the other translations and when you look at the commentaries on this, I think you'll find that he's not really saying something very positive here in the first half of the verse. Uh, The English Standard Version has this, I have seen a limit to all perfection. I have seen a limit to all perfection. And the idea suggested then is that he's looked on perfect things. And he's seen that these perfect things are finite. And because they are finite, of course, they're like us, not like God. And therefore, one can't rely on them. They're finite things. J. Stuart Perown, in his commentary on this, says, suggests two different uh, possibilities. There's nothing upon earth to which there does not cleave some defect. There's a limit to the perfection of anything that's found on earth, in other words. 
Or he says, perhaps it means this, I have seen an end, a limit to the whole range or compass of things. Everything that is in the universe has its limits. But, in contrast with that, your commandment is exceedingly broad. Your commandment is not like the things that are found here in the earth. Your commandment is like you. Your commandment has no limits. Whilst all other things are bounded by a narrow compass. That law is perfect. It is complete. It reflects for us the infinite and perfect and eternal righteousness of the God who gave it to us. We need nothing else besides that law to be our guide here in this world. You can't imagine that there would be any need for, at any point in the history of the world for an additional commandment or that one of the commandments would become irrelevant. They reflect the eternal and infinite righteousness of God. They are exceedingly broad. They embrace, therefore, all of life for us. And they can, therefore, be relied on in the enduring commandments of God in the exceedingly broad commandments of God is all that we need again thinking of that law comprehensively as we find it in the first five books of the scriptures not just the moral law but the ceremonial law the civil law and all that goes along with it And thinking also of that law then, as it is embodied in our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is the enduring word of God, now settled in the heavens. You can take that first statement of this stanza, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. You can say, that's Christ. He's the word who is settled in heavens. He is the embodiment of the enduring, faithful, unchangeable word of God. He is the consummation of perfection. He is the one who kept those exceedingly broad commandments which we fall so far short of. And now has entered into glory And we find our support in Him. We have our our full confidence in Him who is the Word of God, settled in the heavens. May God make His Word effective for us.